0: Welcome to Things to Think About. I'm Luca, and each episode, I sit down with Scott Commoners, professor of market design at Harvard University, to pick his brain about a specific topic in the world of crypto and Web3. I hope you enjoy, but more importantly, I hope you learn something. Morning, Scott. You ready to talk about some crypto? You know it. Today, I wanted to focus on mass adoption. I guess just to start the conversation, what does mass adoption mean or look like to you?
1: That's a great question. Um, and it's particularly you know hard to be um, certain what mass adoption of crypto is going to mean because we're so far from it, right like you know a lot of these like crypto concepts and terms are in the public consciousness now, like you know random people on the street have heard of Bitcoin at least, you know, it's, it's in the news, it's, it's being heard of, but like, there's still very little clarity around, you know, what the actual technology does, and where it could be useful in day to day life. Um, but so to me, like, when I think about mass adoption, um, I first think about Crypto taking on use cases that map to things that are already sort of in the you know sort of the general use of 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 people, right? So like, you know, will people have crypto wallets, you know, on their phones or whatever that they use with the same flexibility that they use Apple Pay or um, you know or other sort of electronic payment apps? Um, Will they be doing transactions, you know, with their friends over over crypto um, wallet, you know, and, and networks? In the same way that they use Venmo or something of the sort, and note Venmo even is not a technology that has reached you know, sort of mass adoption. Uh, you know, it's, it's much more you know sort of widespread than uh, than any sort of crypto wallet, but it's still you know sort of a, a pretty niche technology. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's from there, it's like, does this become embedded in the way that we do, you know, sort of many different forms of transactions and interactions that I, and I, I'm sticking, you know, I keep saying transaction, but I don't just mean financial context, right? It's like, you know, do we, you know, have crypto wallets with, you know, NFTs of Pokemon cards so that when we're like trading Pokemon cards with each other, we might do it digitally. Uh, or, or, you know, or Pokemon Go characters, maybe even a better analogy. Like there we do trade them digitally, um, but, you know, sort of inside of a siloed app, might people like have crypto wallets that they're using to like, you know, trade their Pokemon Go characters and, and frame them outside of the, the, you know, sort of main app. Um, it's those types of, you know, sort of embeddednesses, right? Sort of like becoming part of like normal interactions, you know, that, that people do, not because they're through crypto um, and, and sort of becoming part of the like everyday, you know, use in the same way that like credit cards or, or cash or, you know, sort of collectibles, you know, all of these like categories of, of, you know, transaction or asset that we hold, you know, crypto assets become sort of an ordinary part of, of those categories.
0: To me, it sounds like there's almost three aspects to it there's the scale of of the users, the use cases that they can use, and then the interoperability of of the system as a whole that's built on top of it. Scale and and drawing the consumers in seems to be one of the harder parts of that equation because you can build the interoperability, you can kind of design use cases, arguably. Yep. In that case, do consumers come first or does the technology come first?
1: Great question. Um, you know, sort of classic chicken and egg problem of platform economics, right? You know, do you, uh, do you bring the supply side or the demand side you know, first? Um, here, I mean, we're certainly seeing consumers being pulled in by their desire to engage in, in different parts of the ecosystem. Um, you know, and, and there are many layers of that, right? Like, you know, NBA Top Shot onboarded lots of people, in part because it submerged a lot of the cryptoness of, of what was going on. Um, but nevertheless, it got people exposed to the the concept of a, you know, of an NFT and, like, you know, sort of digital ownership and and that, cha- you know, a lot of people who now, you know, trade many other types of NFTs got into it because TopShot sort of established this, this forum for them and, and, you know, got them to adopt and understand. Um, but I think, like, for the, the mainstream consumer, uh, you know, even if you're like super curious about it, right? Even if you're like reading about the board apes and you know in the newspaper, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is cool." I'm I'm I I wish I could have one of those. You know, first of all, they're out of price range, right? So like, if you do look up the prices, you're like, "Okay, wait, you know, I I probably can't have one of those." That's that's unfortunate. Um, but also that you know the barriers to onboarding are just so extreme, right? You know, there's so many different steps and stages, and and once you're there, you know. This ecosystem has nothing of what we've come to expect from consumer services, especially consumer financial services, in terms of you know intuitive interfaces and even more importantly, you know sort of consumer protection of all different forms, right? Like, and so I think before we can see widespread adoption, there's a there's a big burden on the platforms to both you know make the process of becoming involved in these markets much easier and and even more importantly, as I say, like you know, establishing some of the protections and trust that make it sensible to use, you know, sort of to use crypto for transactions that otherwise you, you might do, you know, in a, you know, using a bank, which, which has all sorts of existing, you know, safety and security guarantees. Um, and then one other footnote, as a side note, um, another thing that's currently prohibitive in many types of crypto transactions is just the raw transaction costs, right? You know, you know, one day, maybe there will be like a stablecoin um, based method for like, you know, buying your food in a restaurant. Um, that's a very like sensible, intuitive use case that, you know, in, in my view, like almost certainly should exist at some point. Like, you know, there's all sorts, again, with all the you sort of appropriate protections and regulatory oversight, right? Like, like, that's something that like, you know, if it became like a mainstream transaction layer would actually need to be built extremely carefully. But like, it, something like that, I think should exist. But it certainly can't be, you know, a platform where the underlying transaction cost is more than the, you know, dramatically more than the cost of your food, right? Like, could you imagine walking to a restaurant and trying to pay an ETH and, like, you know, they're like, okay, great, you know, your your sandwich was twelve dollars or something. That's a, and that's an expensive sandwich, and then it has a gas fee of like eighty bucks, and you're like, wait a minute, what the hell? Or or a gas fee of, of six dollars. That's still a huge implicit tax on your twelve dollar sandwich.
0: So it seems like there's almost two parts to this infrastructure problem, assuming like consumers do want to come in and there is value to the technology. There is the consumer protection aspect or the security aspect, essentially like de-wild west in crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the actual efficiency of the chains. Can you walk us through some of the fundamental issues that people have to address in these spaces and, and questions that have to be answered to be able to put in place some of these solutions. Because for example, with the consumer protection side, I think most people that are not involved in crypto would intuitively say we already have a set of rules and regulations that protect consumers. Why can't we just translate that set of, of protections over to the crypto space? It's
1: a great question. And, and I'm not a lawyer or legal expert. Yeah. I can't speak, you know, I can't speak <laughs> precisely to, to the regulatory infrastructure. Um, but first of all to some degree that's right right like um you know there's a there's a, a um the guys who launched this frosties rug for example i believe i saw are you know currently being prosecuted under you know sort of standard like pre-existing fraud statutes right like you know it's uh you know you're, you're not allowed to um you know and again, I'm not a lawyer, so this is not the, the formal legal <laughs> framing. Um, but you're not allowed to, you know, promise a bunch of you know technology in your product, raise a bunch of money from it, and then just like walk away and 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 even worse, explicitly declare we never had any intention of building any of that stuff. That is, you know, clear fraud. Um, again. Not a lawyer, but that appears to be in this, in this case. It's still pending, but that appears to be. Sorry, I come from a family of lawyers, so we're constantly disclaiming, like you know, when we are not, you know, sort of like you know. Yeah. And, and I'm the only one that doesn't have a law degree, so it's like I do not have the actual knowledge required to say these statements precisely. But
0: they force yeah. you to caveat it. At, at <laughs> exactly, your, like, your I, family is like, used to caveating
1: these things. Um, And, and, you know, so for avoidance of doubt, let me make that caveat one more time. I am not a lawyer. When I say that sounds like clear fraud, Uh, I am not making this as a legal statement. Um, It's a
0: moral judgment. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. Right. Um, But like, you know, to so to some degree, those like existing regulations do have bite here, right? Like, and it's about just extrapolating them into the crypto ecosystem. Uh, At the same time, though, a lot of crypto you know, technology is in, you know, new fuzzy regulatory categories and, or just like, you know, the way the technology has been set up, um, doesn't have some of the the standard built-in protections you're used to, even at the like simple levels, like password, you know, sort of password reminders, right? Like there's a big difference between a seed phrase and a password. When you lose your password, you can usually get it restored. Even if you can't, you know, you lose access to the email account attached to it. Um, you know, you, um, You can often contact the company or whatever and furnish you know a copy of your driver's license or something and they will get you your password back um and meanwhile if your password is stolen by somebody else you usually have recourse right usually like there's some sort of internal protection built around you know sort of whatever the product is that like even if somebody like steals money from you because they stole your password like you know there's some mechanism of recourse, and the company has some way of of trying to make you know sort of make you at least partially whole. Um, by contrast, uh, of course, with a seed phrase, if you lose your seed phrase, it's gone, right? There is no recourse. There's nothing you can do to re- you know, recover it. Uh, and meanwhile, if somebody else takes your seed phrase, it is also gone, right? Like you know, MetaMask doesn't have a mechanism to um, you know <laughs> track down those assets and get them back to you because your seed phrase was stolen. Um, and that's sort of like that distinction is present throughout the crypto ecosystem, right? There's like lots of places where consumers are used to a set of guarantees, some of which are regulatory, some of which are, are sort of backed directly by the, the companies they're interacting with. Um, right? Like you know, GoFundMe has a like you know, no fraudulent campaigns guarantee money back guarantee, right? Like, you know, some of it's managed by the, the companies, but like whatever the case, in you know, once you move into this crypto world, at least right now, um, most of the products you have access to don't come with these types of guarantees um some of them you know could right like you know we're seeing custodial wallets that offer you know sort of things that look more like standard password protection um you know we're we're, and we're even seeing ones that i think are starting to try and build in you know recourse in case of theft and so forth um but some of it is fundamental to the technology right like a lot of the things that make the existing financial system slow and inefficient are also the things that make it possible to unwind, you know, fraudulent transactions. And, and, and that's exactly like you know, the, one of the biggest benefits of crypto is that these things are instantaneous and that they sort of you know sort of just percolate through. Um, but that of course means that it's actually a fundamental technology problem to figure out like how do you provide similar sorts of protections and guarantees without losing all the, the features of the technology as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating problem because, like you said, there's multiple facets to it, right? Like some of it is the infrastructure layer, some of it is yep. company and and service values, and and yep. just how they operate their business. I guess that brings us to the question of the teams and the human capital that are developing these projects right now. I think it's a fair assumption to say that the human capital of the industry is has grown over the past three to four years, um, like pretty substantially. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you look at that inflow of talent from, say, Web two big tech players that are now migrating over, do you think they're going to bring some of that thinking around customer service and and consumer protection to the businesses? Or great question. How do you see that playing out?
1: Footnote. So first of all, like um, I realized. You know, you asked about the sort of the regulatory layer, but there's also this like interface and design layer, right? Part of the yeah. big challenge is making all of this stuff like more intuitive and feel more like services people have have used in the past, um, as a way of like you know demystifying it. Um, that incidentally, that's the place where like the Web two world I think has a huge advantage, right? Like people coming in from having worked on you know in you know large scale platforms that have thought a lot about like user experience design and like you know, and and went through a wave of things being counterintuitive to making them intuitive, right? Like, you know, the original Facebook interface was like not nearly as intuitive as what exists today. The original, like, you know, I was was a, you know, first round user of Gmail and like, you know, comparing how Gmail worked then to like how it works now. I mean, it's just like, it's it's night and day. Although I, I will say, you know, footnote that I still think the second Gmail interface was actually the best one they've ever designed. I, I do think they went downhill when they, like, took away a lot of the labels and replaced them with icons, but that's a personal beef. Um, the, um So there is a real sense in which a lot of this, like, intuitiveness and, like, making, like, complex, like, you know, technologies, like, something people can actually navigate. I think the Web2 world has... A huge amount of um, you know human capital, sort of stored up, and 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 that they can bring to this, um, and to some degree on the the regulatory points as well. Um, although there, of course, there there is a challenge. There's a challenge that the the sort of the conceptual regulatory questions around crypto were just very different from what we saw in like you know in in Web two platforms, right? Like it was a um, you know. There, were, there are similarities, right? Like there's consumer protection questions around loss of data um, or, um, you know, online trolling and stuff like that, but it's a different set of, you know, it's a different set of challenges and you almost need more like the types of people who were thinking about, um, you know, both, you know, it's almost more like, you know, the, the people who were like, I think the real experts in that. We're actually sort of the like web one to web two transition, like from the early online marketplaces, the early online banking and payments platforms and things. Like that's where like we solved the first iterations of these questions. All of that said, those guys are coming in too, right? So it's there, there is a huge human capital influx. And um and so I think we're, you know, there, there's there will be a lot of you know sort of advancement and, and, and leveling up on this in the next year or two. There, there already is you know over the you know just even think about like how much more accessible the technology's gotten in the last year. Um, the other and, and one other footnote, of course, is that you know here to a large degree we're seeing regulation a little bit more like prospective rather than reactive, which I think is is important, right? Like. Another thing you need in order to have, you know, consumers feel comfortable using this technology is reasonable comfort that they can understand like what the assets are, what they mean, like how they'll be treated. And like with platform economics, I think a lot of the questions around competition and and data privacy and stuff were sort of worked out after the fact. Whereas here, I think there's like a real push to, you know, and in in ways that were, I don't know, in ways that I think resulted in a lot of consumers not quite understanding what was happening when they were interacting with these platforms. Um, I think here, again, especially because of all the ties into finance, it's it's seen as a huge priority to try and understand what these, you know, how you should categorize these different types of assets, what the tax implications are, right, all of these things, you know, upfront. And I actually think that will give consumers much more comfort. Again, once you know, we're not there yet, but but once we get there, right? Like, you know, you might be, uh, you might have a lot of discomfort about the idea of trying to buy a sandwich in ETH because you don't know whether, you know, again, leaving aside the gas fees, but like, you don't know whether you've just like, you know, done a capital, you know, like incurred a capital gain or not, right? Um, figuring out things like what cryptocurrencies really sort of function as currencies, which things are capital assets, like, you know, all of these like sort of basic, you know, regulatory definition questions, I think settling them will will help a lot for uh, for consumers to be able to use this stuff.
0: Yeah, I am fascinated by this idea of categorizing the assets and how that kind of automatically starts to make this system a little clearer. Um, I heard Brian Armstrong, a couple of days ago, not that that really matters, since this is a podcast and it'll be replayed <laughs> at any time, um, talk about that idea of we need to have clear guidelines and, and checklists to be able to define what a token actually is, because yeah. they serve so many different purposes. Totally. Some have utility, some operate like commodities that just fuel the, the network, others are NFTs. It's, it's a very interesting world. Um, I want to pull back a little bit to the use case side. Mm-hmm. In Web two, we heard a ton of talk about killer apps, killer use cases, yeah. things that helped humanize a new technology and and bring it into the social conscious. A lot of people have talked about NFTs as that the path, you know, the first million users or whatever it is. Yep. Do you see killer use cases continuing to develop outside of DeFi or? Is that going to be the the main vertical of growth for the next couple of years? It's a great question.
1: I actually, you know, it's funny. This is a question I get a lot um, because crypto has started out in a way that is so financialized. that like a lot of people sort of imagined upfront that the main use cases were all going to be financial, and like there are as, as you know I've been alluding to this, this whole series you know, session. Like there are massive financial use cases that will be you know that I I expect will be super high, you know, consumer and social value in the long run. Um, But I actually think the like raw consumer applications are are worth way more uh, in total. And in particular, there's a big difference between the way that products like NFTs acquire value and the way that currencies acquire value. So a currency and, and... uh, Christian Catalini and Ravi Jagadisan and I make this in a in a piece in with this point in a piece in Project Syndicate. Cryptocurrencies, you know, like any currency, sort of only become value, like usefully valuable, right? Like they, they might be like a you know a, you know a speculative or you know investment asset or, or potentially a store of value, but to be used as a currency, they're only useful when a large number of people agree that they're meaningful, right? Like you have to, you know, for something to be a currency, you have to be able to exchange it for a lot of different goods and services flexibly, right? Mm -hmm. It's not useful to have a currency that people are only willing to exchange, um, I don't know, um, you know, colored hats for, because, you know, if you have your five hats, then like, you know, what are you gonna do with the currency? And goodness, what on earth is the haberdasher going to do, right? Like, you know, they're, they're trading all their hats for this currency, and now they've just got the currency. The only thing they can do is, like, trade it to themselves. Um, so cryptocurrency has had this struggle that because it's not useful for most types of exchanges that most people want to engage in, it's very hard for it to become broadly adopted, right? Like it, it gets used in niche markets, it gets used by niche traders, but like until it really, it, it sort of, until it's achieved widespread adoption, it can't achieve widespread adoption. And that's like a very hard loop to, to overcome. Um, by contrast, NFTs and other sort of like, you know, tokens that are built around, you know, sort of small communities or like specific use cases um can take off very quickly right because you only need the set of people who might want to use that token to agree on its value Um, and so in the like you know the the extremely micro case right like if an artist has 10 fans they can sell those, you know, fans, their, their NFT artworks. And like just the fact that those people want to buy the artist's art is enough to imbue those tokens with value. It doesn't matter whether like a random person on the street thinks that those tokens mean anything at all, right? All that matters is whether the 10 fans of this artist think that those tokens are meaningful. Um, and even at larger scales, right? Like, you know, if you think about tickets to a show, um, you know, so long as the, you know, the venue that is processing the tickets treats these NFTs as, you know, the, the ticket for entry and, and the unique entry, you know, sort of asset for each individual. Um, again, it doesn't matter whether the average person thinks that these digital tokens mean anything, right? Like the fact that the, you know, the venue is letting you in or not as a function of whether you have this token in your crypto wallet immediately establishes value for it. And like bootstraps, like, you know, sort of, use value for this sort of entire like you know set of token units um and so i think again and as a result i think it's not a coincidence that it's nfts that have really sort of captured the consumer consciousness right That like you know suddenly become like exciting and and interesting you know first of all it's a little strange right like you know it's it's curious it's odd but like bitcoin is curious and odd too right like you Mm -hmm. know money that's just sort of a, a cryptographic system how strange um the difference is that like it's not you know nfts are not just curious and odd but there's something that people can immediately start interacting with parts of the use value of right like you don't have and you don't have to buy into the entire category right like even if it's just like i'm buying tickets to this show and they happen to be issued as nfts like you're immediately getting some value from the thing and gaining some intuition for why they are valuable um and if you just you know, think about all the different consumer use cases that that already exist, but live in digital exhaust, right? Like, you know, the context of ticketing, right? Tickets are currently sitting in your email in a way that like, you know, sort of just becomes exhaust after you've gone, they're just a QR code you scan when you walk in the door. And and you certainly can't like, you know, resell that ticket or something at an auction years later in the way you might have if you had a ticket to a really important baseball ball game from, you know, the early 20th century or something um but also like you know so much of our work product so much of our like you know day-to-day digital activity has things that could be assets could be like something that is owned by someone um and that nobody has ever thought about owning and thus we like lose a ton of value from right like uh, another example i use a lot um in, in classes is you know my, my, t- my students typically do internships where you probably they probably had to make at least one PowerPoint or other slide deck, right? Um, and once you've made that slide deck, of course, it stays with the company, and you have no idea what happens to that slide deck. And, and you can tell people, look, I made some slide decks, but that adds no information to the world because we know you had an internship yeah. that involved making a slide deck. Um, what if your slide deck, was attached to a a digital asset that's sort of the echo of your slide deck, right? So like you leave the slide deck with the company, but every time the CEO opens it, this like thing in your digital wallet, you know, sort of levels up and says, you know, CEO has opened this slide deck 40 times. Um, Now suddenly, you know, what was previously sort of completely lost information, but is pretty valuable to you and and to people who might want to employ or, or work with you, right? You know, you created a slide deck as an intern in your sophomore year of college that is now being like sort of shared around by everyone in the company is like opening it every single day. Um, that's like the type of thing that now one can actually own and and extract value from in a way that we never could capture value in the past. Um, and so I think we're going to see more and more use cases like that. And again, these are these are sort of all maps to things we already understand, right? Like, of course, like the really magical use cases, just like with every wave of, of Internet technology, are, are the things that are completely out of our imagination, right? Like, you know, we, we might not be doing these internships anymore 10 years ago. or 10 years from now because crypto introduces some new, like, magical, like, you know, replacement to the internship. Uh, we can only hope. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just think there's so much value to be created, even just in the existing consumer applications that crypto would do better, that it's going to be a huge category.
0: I think that idea of <clears throat> commoditizing data information that already is out there and giving ownership back to the people that like conceptually or, or ethically own that data yeah. um, is just fascinating. And like you're saying, like the echo idea for PowerPoints that you can the tracking analytics of of how often your ideas and your information is used is just so fascinating. I want to zoom out a little bit um, to kind of wrap this discussion up. When we talk about all of these different design challenges, there are almost two aspects of it. One is the side of the people who work in the industry, who are developing, who are building, who care very deeply about all of these technical challenges and, and the cryptography that's going on and and the academic research that's going on Mm -hmm. and then there are the consumers web 2's approach seemed very much to be like let's hide the technical layer abstract Mm -hmm. out the technical layer and just kind of allow consumers to access the service do you think that that is still a viable strategy in crypto or are we broadly harming the space by reducing consumer knowledge of how it actually operates given how fundamentally changing and and You know ground changing this technology is
1: that's a fantastic question i guess my instinct is it's a little bit of both um and again this is all to be seen because we haven't you know this is very early days um but my instinct is it's a little bit of both that like on the one hand the guts of the technology we will often still be submerging right like you know people aren't going to be, you know, the average consumer is not going to be reading a solidity contract to figure out what the heck it is they're buying on the internet. Um, and, and indeed, right, many average consumers won't even know like what blockchain some digital asset is on or like precisely how things are moving from one wallet to another, right? Like, like those types of sort of like low level technical details, I think will, will still be submerged in, in designs that you know in average consumer design simply because the average consumer doesn't you know doesn't know what like doesn't have anything they could do with that information and uh and so it would just be friction right it would just be like an additional complication to have to think about like do i want to use this digital wallet because it's on this chain versus this other chain or something of the sort you know you want to use a digital wallet you're convinced it's going to have a lot of transaction partners and low transaction fees um at the same time though I think the the underlying conceptual frameworks of the technology are actually very important for consumers to understand in a way that they weren't previously, right? Like if you're gonna be collecting tokens and participating in some online game world or something, like you actually have to understand something about how the tokenomics work. Um, if you're gonna be, um, interfacing with you know some you know some new crypto based platform, you have to understand which assets actually reside in your wallet versus what resides on platform. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that layer, which I which has never been you know clear before, right? Like, you know, sort of it's you know who owns the images and you know on a social media platform is buried somewhere in the terms and conditions that like almost nobody ever reads. And even if they do read, they probably still don't understand what they what they say. Um, I said recently, I'm not a lawyer, I have no opinion about like sort of the interpretation about these terms and conditions, this is probably gonna become a meme. Like every single one of these, I'm gonna be saying like every time, like I'm not a, I'm lawyer. Not a lawyer. But like, no. but, like what I, well, the point is like the incentive design, the sort of, you know, the, the structure of the transactions I think has to be salient in order to understand like which transactions you even wanna participate in, in a way that that has not been true in previous er, you know, sort of eras of, of digital technology. Um, and I will say I'm hopeful about this as something that will empower consumers um, more, right? Like, you know, for example, you know, the concept of a a platform vampire attack, right? The one platform could like, you know, suck the consumers from from another platform by offering better services and, and rewards and so forth, right? Like that's because in Web3 consumers are empowered to move from platform to platform. And thus platforms are incentivized to teach them about why they should want to use their platform, what differentiates them, what makes them better on on technical and and, sort of um, practical dimensions. And so like my hope is that this is actually gonna be a good thing that like those layers of the design and technology are actually to become much more visible and consumers will make informed choices and platforms and, and project creators and so forth will have incentives to create really high value choices for consumers.
0: I think it's pretty clear that consumer education, and I don't even know if that's really the right word. It's somewhere mm. between like marketing and, and education. Yeah, is going to become increasingly important for companies to be able to do and and be aware of. Um, even with something like Board A Yacht Club, right? There's consistently calls for them to do a better job of educating totally. their their community or or their consumer base, whatever you want to call it, because of just the massive amounts of fishing and theft that go on. Um, related to that project. I'm sure at some point in the future, given your background, um, we'll dive into that consumer education a little bit more deeply. But this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for for sharing those thoughts and ideas. Always interesting.
1: Thanks, always fun to chat.
0: I hope that conversation sparked some new ideas for you. It certainly did for me. If you'd like to connect with Scott, you can find them on Twitter at S commoners. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can also find me on Twitter at it'slukawm. If you want to hear about a specific area of interest, send us a message on Twitter or Discord. We would love to hear your perspective. As always, stay thingy, do good things, and we'll see you next week.